Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Bo Carafel. We're at the Laurelhurst Park in Portland. It's March 16th, 2021. Bo, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, first question for you, most important one to get started. Why wine? In a way, I didn't have much of a choice in a good sense. Um, my dad was a distributor. He worked Before that, he worked in France, in Paris, in New York City for wine stores, and then started moved out to California in the mid-80s, started his own distributorship. So I literally grew up in the business with winemakers crashing on the couch. Uh, he sold a lot of California wine, but then also Italian, Spanish, French, and wine was an integral part of the life that we had with food and at the table. Uh, my mom was very into cooking. She, I was super lucky. She took classes at Cordon Bleu at Culinary Institute of America. And so food and wine were a part of the life that I knew. I didn't know anything else. And so I found my way to wine through that mm-hmm. mainly. Um, and then job, college job at a wine store where a lot of us got started, I think. So. Did you ever consider doing anything else? I did. I did. I actually went to school to be an airline pilot. Um, that was right when September 11th happened. And I was, I was in flight school uh, in Arizona on that day and realized very quickly that not only had the world changed, but in my micro view of the world, airline travel had changed. And when all of the pilots were being furloughed, there were no jobs available really so I was looking at coming out of flight school at Embry-Riddle with something like 200,000 in debt and working as a flight instructor for a few years making 15 to 20,000 a year and I realized that was realistically unsustainable and so I left after a year got my private pilot's license but left after a year went back to San Diego did junior college for a couple of years and then ended up going to San Diego State uh, to be a business major and I had dreams, notions of being perhaps working for the government, um, Treasury Department or CIA, or businessman, um, majored in finance, minored in economics, and that obviously got waylaid by the wine business, which sucked me in when I was 19, working at a little wine store in Del Mar, California. So. Kind of a big culture shock, I would imagine, going from Embry-Riddle to San Diego State, from yes. flight school to, to business school. Tell me about that kind of transition 2000, for you. 2,000 person flight school where it's living, breathing, everything is aviation, and, and the classes are oriented around aviation, the engineering classes, the meteorology classes, the physics classes, math, everything is oriented around turning people into pilots and, and airline pilots and going back home to San Diego where I grew up, I'd already lived there 20, 20 years. Um, going to a huge state school with 40,000 kids and majors across the board was it was a huge shock and it was exciting it was a little different for me because I was a already through some of college and b a little older and I guess c I had a job so the campus life I never fully integrated into Mm -hmm. I had a job I had friends outside of all of that I had an apartment I didn't really feel the need to join Greek life. I didn't feel the need to join 
a lot of the organizations that are available on campus. Only later did I realize that they do have a wine club and a champagne club. <laughs> and so I missed the boat on that one. But I was working at a wine store, and so I got my exposure that way. So, so let's talk about that, that first wine job. You, you mentioned kind of growing up in wine mm -hmm. and, and not really knowing any, any different than wine and food. Um, what was there anything for you when you got into a, a, a wine career that was outside of the outside of your family kind of um, outside of the, sort of the family you've grown up with was there anything different about it what, what was it about wine at that point that grabbed you it was the the transition from wine as a beverage at the table with food or as a way to facilitate conversations into wine almost as a commodity to be bought and sold and that transition affected me then and I think has continued to affect me throughout my career because I was entirely unaware of the market for wine because I didn't see it as something to be sold except in an abstract concept where my dad would sell it and so he'd work all day selling wine to restaurants and wine bars and grocery stores and Costco and I would meet the winemakers but the the functional transaction never was in my head until I worked at a store and had to sell wine that was mm -hmm. the the point of the store was wine and cigars and it was in a you know, in Del Mar, California, a fairly wealthy area of San Diego. So once that set in, it started to reshape my view of wine in its entirety, really, mm -hmm. and how you evaluate wine, what you think of wine, how you even look at a, a label, a bottle, anything like that was changing. Mm -hmm. So, Tell me about your, your, your wine education at this point. How did you learn about the regions of the world and the varietals and, and all of that? What was your education it, process? That was very informal which ended up setting a, a, a tone for the rest of my career. It was, it was tasting a lot with the reps coming in. And, and, and as I noted, you know, I, I was 19, 20 years old, so I was not legally able to, to drink and taste. But part of what I benefited from was people knew my dad because he had been working for so long mm -hmm. in San Diego as a rep, and he had a good reputation. He owned his own business. There was still that underlying sense of, yeah, we want to taste with you. So starting the formal tasting of wines that you then evaluate whether or not you want to buy and sell was the educational component and because of that reading tasting notes wine spectator wine enthusiast reading those articles about regions was the, the education I was getting at the time I wasn't taking any sommelier classes or you know w set classes or anything like that so you learned so you learned wine from a different perspective than many people in yeah. terms of selling it first. So tell me about that. What what did you start to learn about what sells a wine and how you sell a wine? I learned that the more I thought I realized about consumer behavior, the less I actually knew. <laughs> I think that that was in itself a shocking realization. It took a few years and that that I think every wine salesperson has, has probably had that at this point. I think that when it came down to trying to convince someone to buy a bottle of wine. What I really took home was just how fragmented the population of wine buyers is. And what that to me meant was people are looking for different things and so many people are looking for so many different things that when you approach one person, that approach may not work for the next and the next, but it maybe will work for the 20th person. And I think that helped me get a sense of agility in, in the sales approach and also I hope it taught me to be a better listener to the consumer and the, the customer and what they wanted mm -hmm. instead of just trying to pigeonhole them into one specific wine that needed to be sold and that was a very retail centric perspective as well mm -hmm. I wasn't a rep at that point I wasn't having a hot sheet to sell it was straight up they came to us mm -hmm. at the store so mm -hmm. 
did you find trends for what the that the number one thing people were looking for was was it was it label was it price was it varietal was it region was there something that was kind of a consistent factor there was i i came of of age so to speak in the early to mid 2000s so what was blowing up in del mar california were the big california cabs the big high scoring uh paso robles Syrahs, the big napa chardonnays and and that was where we saw a lot of points inflation starting with that 97 ish vintage um and we saw people increasing their consumption of wine media and the main wine storytellers were people that were critics and were assigning points to wine. And so I think my education really was driven on that side of it by people asking, do you have X, Y, and Z? This got 97 points. This got 100 points. Do you have these wines? And so regions that are maybe cool now and sell well now, like I would say Languedoc is a great example, the reps selling them couldn't move those wines, but I could sell Silver Oak and Camus and those really well-known historical California wines extremely easily without any trouble like the allocations were gone so seeing that was seeing that and also seeing how much money people were willing to spend on wine that was jarring it wasn't because again I'd never really had to buy wine Mm -hmm. it was at home everywhere and there were samples open and why would I buy wine so all of a sudden saying wow I I like this Cabernet or I like this Burgundy wait a second it's $50 Mm -hmm. (laughs) what am I supposed to do with that if I'm making $10 an hour that sucks Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. it was a lot of things coming at you at one time in in the first few years in my career so what's the next step for you Del Mar is your first stop what's what's the next step in your your career path it was a small store real small store um, maybe 800 square foot store 100 SKUs, so I moved on from there. I worked there for a few years. I learned a lot, tasted a lot. Moved on to uh, San Diego Wine Company, which was, I think, the biggest, by vol- by sales volume, probably the biggest store in San Diego. Um, and it was well-known as, as uh, flat, 10% margin on all the wines. Um, so didn't matter the label or the price, it was just 10%. So it, I went from a sleepy-ish environment in Del Mar to this crazy high energy intense environment where we were tasting 100 wines a week easily sometimes more because those that was the account and i'm sure any rep that watches this will know where you know there are accounts that are sample dump accounts where you just roll in with a case of samples and they taste them and that's what would happen the reps would drop off samples and we would just stack so i i I tasted thousands of wines when i worked there and that was that leap in how to taste, what to taste, even the order of how to taste wines and what to look for in wines. And again, that was a different consumer than Del Mar. So those were people that were more driven by value and knew they were getting a good deal, but still wanted to buy good wine. Mm -hmm. So I learned how to taste for that. Good value, but good quality versus high scoring or weird geeky Del Mar market. This was just Flies, stuff flies out the door. Case stacks, pallet stacks, and people buying by the case. So that was an ex- extremely valuable experience. And it was, I think I only worked there for seven or eight months, roughly, and then ended up moving over to Trader Joe's to work in the wine department at a store there, which was, <laughs> that was a whole nother experience, another piece of the pie of what wine consumers are looking for, sure. selling wine, really, at a grocery store. Sure. So. 
I'll come back to that in a second, but I'm, I'm curious about at, at San Diego Wine Company, you mentioned kind of taking a leap forward in your own personal palate, your own personal tasting yes. ability. Um, what did you, how did you, what were you identifying? And are you tasting that much wine and looking for that, that blend of value and quality? What were you tasting for? What were the kind of the consistent points? At that point, I thought, and I still think I was looking for balance, and I was looking, because I was tasting so many different wines, I was looking for things that excited my palate. And that was kind of the first step. And then I would go back and look at the price. We tried to taste everything semi-blind, where we saw the label, we didn't really know the price. Um, and so we knew what varietals we were tasting, and we knew the blends, but I was tasting for myself to taste, just to get more experience, and, and to break out of California a little mm -hmm. bit too. So Australia, New Zealand, France, Spain, Italy, Argentina. So that was so much more being sold that I got to start to hone in on regions too. Mm -hmm. So I started getting real interested in Champagne. I started getting real interested in Burgundy, uh, Rioja, and a little bit of New Zealand Red. So those were regions I started to really find fascinating and so I would be interested in tasting those mm -hmm. and became sort of a de facto guy for like the New Zealand wines and some of the champagnes which was fun you know as, as a 22 year old kid 23 year old kid tasting these wines and having people come to you and want to know why you know this Billicart Semon Rosé is is it better than the last vintage or last release that was and I could say yeah I think it is or no it's not so that having to stratify wine in my own head uh -huh. and start to build instead of an ad hoc memory system, build a system of saying, yeah, you did taste this. So remember that you tasted this. Mm -hmm. That started to more fully mature my approach to wine, I think. It's pretty heady power to have at that age, I imagine. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it, it did. It, it, as any, you know, 20 something, it went, I think, to my head in a lot of ways. Um, especially, you know, you taste wines and then you find out that they got a big score in one of the magazines and you start to believe it your own hype a little much and you start to believe you, you lose some of that humility and you start to believe that yeah i've got a palate that's that's pretty darn good i i'm i i know some stuff and it only takes a few more blind tastings to make it crash down to earth but you do start to kind of feel good about wine mm -hmm. you don't reach the point where you understand what you don't know mm -hmm. and you don't reach the point at that point for me i hadn't understood how much bigger the world was, even outside of a busy store in San Diego that sold hundreds of thousand dollars a month. I didn't understand there was still more and more and more beyond that. So. Was Oregon wine on your radar at all at this point? Absolutely, yeah. I, um, some of the first Oregon wines that I tasted, Willa Kenzie, um, Brooks, actually met Jimmy um, at, I believe, it was, it, was a, it was an Oregon portfolio tasting in San Diego with this guy, Dan Berquist, Berquist Wine Marketing. Uh, down there, I don't even—I don't know if he's still around, but he was bringing in some cool stuff. Um, he was bringing in Penarash, yeah, Willa Kenzie, Domaine Serene, and maybe not him entirely, but there was there were Oregon Pinots coming into San Diego, and that was cool because it was a region that wasn't talked about because the wines here are wines a little more of nuance, I, in my opinion, and especially they were 15 years ago, and because of that they weren't these big dense California Pinots they had some structure and they had acid and the winemakers weren't afraid to talk about that and so when you taste those after tasting through a bunch of Anderson Valley you know Pinot Noir you start to say wow wait wait a second these are different these kind of remind me of Burgundy and so tasting with whatever Dan Berquist would come around he always had cool wines mm -hmm. um, and there's other labels I can't remember at this point but 
it was neat. It was neat. And of course, you know, Domaine Serene was, was, had those uh, ads in Wine Spectator when they had beat Domaine Romani Conti in the tastings. They had these, these big full-page things, which you can't help but see when your customers are consuming Wine Spectator media and asking for the wines and saying, I saw this, I, you know, I'd like to buy this. And it's like, well, that, that vintage is four years old. The current release is this, but this is the producer. So, mm-hmm. so you mentioned the, ne- the next step was Trader Joe's and, and, yeah. a, big, and a big change there. So tell, us, tell us about that. That was, so I, I ended my time at San Diego Wine Company and needed a job. I was, I was, I think I was close to finishing school and almost feeling a little burnout from college. I was just tired of it. I wanted my degree. I wanted to move on. I didn't think about wine very much in terms of where do I want to go with this. I just thought I needed a job, a good paying job. Trader Joe's was a great company to work for. And so at the La Jolla store, I got the job and you know, each crew member was doing everything. You'd do everything, but you'd sometimes have specialties. And since I had such a wine background, um, I started helping more in the wine section. I would write the wine order for the store. And so you had about 900 options to choose from in the order guide that you could order for your store. And there were mandatory things like the, you know, two buck chuck. Everybody had to buy two buck chuck. Every store had to carry that wine and, and, and other mandatory wines to carry. But then there was some freedom and there was some freedom in how to merchandise it mm-hmm. and how to sell it and how to design the shelf talkers and things like that. So that was, again, a step up but also a realization that instead of working at a place where people only come to buy wine, they were buying everything else but wine. So they weren't there to see me in the wine section. It was incidental to their purchase or as an afterthought or even, I like wine, I'll see what they have, but I don't really care. Mm -hmm. Whereas you made a choice to go to San Diego Wine Company, you made a choice to go to Fumar Wine and Cigars. So that's a different kind of selling. Um, it's, It's harder, it's less, captive audience that's for sure when there's you know dry roasted almonds on that shelf and then you're trying to sell california cab on the next shelf so mm-hmm. that was definitely a, another turning point for me mm-hmm. so what did you notice there as as you're dealing with a, a like you said a, a non-captive mm-hmm. audience what did you notice that was it mostly people buying by price at that point or were there people they still came in looking for specific things it was it was a lot of a lot of different elements there were a lot of people that had the perception, I won't say if it's right or wrong, it's not my place, but the perception that Trader Joe's was a place to get good quality wines at good prices. Mm-hmm. And I think there was a lot of stuff that fit that bill for them. Um, there was also uh, people that would just grab a bottle of wine because it was wine and and it was the aspirational side, right? It was the aspirational side, the ceremony and the aspiration of pulling a cork out of a glass bottle and serving it with your friends. And it was right by UCSD campus. So it was a mix of families, you know, elderly people, because there were some really nice retirement communities there, and then UCSD students. And so the mix of people was, again, levering up my diversity quotient in, in the wine population. And that was surprising. Mm-hmm. It was realizing that people buy wine for all different reasons. You, you have to connect with them one-on-one, it may take a minute, it may take a second, it may take two minutes. You may not get them to buy that $20, $30, $50 wine, but they may walk out of there with a $10 wine and then come back the next week and say, I really like this. What else do you have? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. more relationship driven, which is part of the ethos of Trader Joe's. I think we all can agree that the employees are friendly. The store is set up to get you to buy stuff. And certainly the wine section was no you know, different than any of that. Mm-hmm. So. 
then they've had the kind of the full run of wine sales experience. So what, what happens next? Well, I'd had everything to that point. I think, well, not everything, but a lot, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of things about sales on a retail side. I'd never done wholesale work. I'd never worked for a winery. And I was working for Trader Joe's and I knew I wanted to leave San Diego. I, I loved growing up there, but it was time to change. Scenery change. And that's when I, I'd visited Oregon. I had a couple of really good friends uh, up here who I had met at a wine bloggers conference. And I was, I was writing a wine blog at the time and just writing about wines that I tasted that I liked. And the networking that came with that led me to a couple guys up here to, who do a video blog. It's called uh, Wine is Serious Business. They've been doing it for a long time. Great guys. I think a lot of people in the industry know them. And I was lucky to become friends with them. And so, you know, obligatory shout out to Dan and Chaz. But they met me uh, at the Wine Bloggers Conference in Walla Walla in 2010. And I was lucky enough to get a scholarship for that. For some reason, people liked my funny tasting notes about wine and I met them there and they brought some Oregon wines uh, we didn't, 2008 Evesham Wood Chardonnay and that was the wine that changed my perception of Oregon wine from these are really cool wines they're nice I like them I enjoy them to to the the aha moment of okay so Oregon is perfectly capable of crafting wines that compete with the white burgundy with with the best and I think that that was, I hadn't really known that. Or if I had, I hadn't quite believed it. Mm -hmm. And so then I came and visited up here again, and uh, we went and tasted all through the valley with them. They organized this tour, it was like six of us. We went and tasted like 100 wines in a day. <laughs> and I think I was one of the only people spitting, because I, <laughs> I did have the professional approach still to spit. And, and um, that, was, that was awesome. We tasted, we went to like Elk Cove, um, Jeez, Laurel Ridge, uh, Seven of Hearts, and a, a bunch of others, right, to taste and, and go through wines. And it was it was part, just let's see if we can get to 100 wines. We went to uh, White Rose and tasted there. That was super cool. And so that was a crash course in Oregon Pinot. And so that was the 2008, seven, eight, and nine vintages were really what was being poured, if I remember right. Or maybe the 2007 and 8 vintage, the 9 vintages. But that was a crash course in Oregon that I'd never had before. It was kind of a one-day, eight-hour master class in tasting as many Oregon Pinot bottlings, but also you know, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, and, and the occasional Riesling. So that was, that was cool. And I kind of, at that point, fell in love with it and had just gotten to this point of, like, I want to move. And it was down to Napa and Oregon. And I had a job offer in Napa. Um, and I interviewed there at a winery for a tasting room job. And I, if I remember it, I didn't get the job, but I knew that I wanted to be f more into wine at that point. So that was the big thing. Get more into wine. Mm -hmm. How? And that was, after visiting here, I was like, I need to move here. Mm -hmm. So that set the wheels in motion to leave and, and move, start planning to move to Oregon. Sure. So. So planning to move to Oregon to get more into wine, but not with a really clear cut goal at that point yet. Right. So what, I did, actually, you, what did you do when you got here? I thought I was going to stay with Trader Joe's. Um, there were some circumstances that came up. I thought I had um, an agreement to transfer stores, which was the, the process in those days. A uh, store in Northeast Portland I thought I was going to be able to go to, and that fell through literally at the last minute. Like I'd given notice at my apartment, packed up my then girlfriend. Uh, she had like flown down to help pack everything, and, and so everything was set. I'd given notice at my store. Um, I think we had put a deposit on an apartment, and all of a sudden no you don't have the job sorry so I was still moving and I was very fortunate 
to, to have a backup plan, um, and it was it was shocking. I had to leave Trader Joe's after five something years, and that in a way helped because it really refocused me on getting into wine deeper and more into I would say wholesale or production. So I had done a lot in retail and I felt a little burned out of retail. And so wholesale and production started to get more appealing to me. And I think that made my dad happy because he was, you know, had his business and was like, wow, finally my, my son is actually interested in wholesale. Wow. I don't know if he ever saw that happening, but, uh, but yeah. So what was your first step towards that? Moving up here, um, my then girlfriend was uh, Becky Kramer, her parents own Kramer Vineyards. They're second generation now. They've been there since 84. Um, and so she was awesome, helped me move up here and they needed a harvest intern or at least told me they needed a harvest intern because they were so nice and an incredible family. And so that was the move up here, no job within a couple weeks. That was 2011 when we had the late harvest. Um, and because of that, I was able to get in as the harvest intern in 2011 and worked with that vintage as my first vintage in Oregon and started to learn about production mm -hmm. and just how insanely complex it is. But at the same time, how the basic steps are unchanged for 5,000 years. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. What appealed to you about the process of, of working at Harvest? I think that the biggest appeal as someone who'd done retail sales and who knew wine as a bottled thing to move off of a shelf and into someone's hands what appealed to me was the entire opposite of that which is getting the wine to the point where it can go to the shelf i didn't know a lot about that in terms of the finer elements i knew how wine was made and i knew the general outlines but all of the decisions that go into making wine and how many variables there are for example, barrels, and, and you know, I think any other winemaker would tell you, just you can make so many decisions through the process or not make decisions, but not knowing that mm -hmm. was, was fascinating to me, that just learning, trying to suck up everything, just like a sponge of like, this is, this is crazy, it's overwhelming. And the physical work itself, you know, pushing bins full of fermenting grapes around on a, on a cool day felt great. It, you were out there, you felt connected, uh, morning punch downs felt great. And... Part of that was the excitement of being doing something new. So the novelty was there. But also being a part of a process to make a, a, a bottled product that you wouldn't even taste in its finished form for three or four years. That was appealing to me as well. So, so at that point, did that change something in you? Did that change your kind of your, your, your future plans? It definitely did in terms of I knew I never wanted to go back to retail. I, I I guess never say never. Here we are almost, you know, 10 years later almost, I guess. But I just realized that retail was something that I used as a tool to learn and it definitely shaped my perception of wine and informed me. But not wanting to go back to that was one side of the coin. The other was the desire to jump deeper in to mm -hmm. the wine business and immerse myself in it, mm -hmm. which probably, again, is a familiar refrain. You, everyone has the hook that gets them in. It could be a great bottle, it could be working harvest, whatever it is, but that working that, that first vintage 2011 and seeing the stress, the happiness, the sadness, the frustration, the joy, everything. And I remember pressing, we had a late press for some uh, red grapes from Washington. I think it was after Thanksgiving in the snow on the crush pad. And part of it sucks 
because it's cold and windy and it's snowing on you and the press is still going and you still have to barrel down everything. But part of it is, is magical. Mm -hmm. And being able to say, wow, I did that and I helped in this process and sharing that camaraderie, that was another one of those hooks that drew me in. And so I realized the immersion in wine in the wine business was, was there. And from there it was just how deep can I go? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so what point, so what is the next step for you? When, when you start thinking about starting your brand, what's the, what's the next step for you at this point? So I'd done, so at this point I'd done retail and, and, and some production experience, albeit limited, but I hadn't worked for a winery in a tasting room and I'd been, been to a lot of tasting rooms in, in California, here in Oregon, in Washington. And so I actually ended up getting a job uh, for a winery called Cathedral Ridge out there uh, in, in uh, Hood River. And they were opening a tasting room in Dundee. And so I got a job as the, like the co-manager and I was doing a lot of the social media and kind of educating the staff and then partly running it. And there was this really, really cool lady, uh, Sandy, was doing the events. She, was she knew like events and hospitality, like the back of her hand. So she was setting up all these events. And so that was my foray into winery day to day, mm -hmm. but also winery retail, but selling one brand and selling one set of wines and wine clubs. And so the structural side, which doesn't necessarily get talked about a lot but just the structural side of wine and understanding that there's the romanticized working harvest or not romanticized when you know, you're know you covered with bugs and it sucks, but there is that, but also you have to be able to buy your grapes for the next vintage and, and so on and so forth. So working for a winery, I think I worked there for six months or seven months while still helping out up at Kramer Vineyards and helping them and working with them and you know seeing how wine is bottled for the first time seeing how spring racking is done so so all those things and it was that duality um that got me through you know 2012 um in, into like september of 12 and i was i was also i think working for a distributor a very small distributor selling like a limited book but that was whole that was wholesale so going to accounts will you taste these wines in my bag today that kind of thing so furthering that dive into into wine wine that nebulous concept of wine so did you notice anything was there what were the were there any obvious differences about selling wine here versus selling wine in southern california i think i never worked retail here but i think there are i think that the people here consumers i feel are when i was selling them wine a little more educated and because here we're so close to the valley and we're, I mean, we're so close to Hood River and even Southern Oregon, but there is an education level and an expectation level among consumers here to, to get Oregon wine. Um, there's a, a loyalty to the valley and to local Northwest producers. And working and living in San Diego, the closest wine region is Temecula, but it doesn't have maybe like the most serious reputation. Um, it's got a different reputation it doesn't I think in wine circles it maybe isn't taken as seriously and I don't know whether that's fair or not that's clearly not my place to, to talk about but it from there the romanticized Napa Sonoma and central coast of Paso Robles and Solvang you're you're a bit removed whereas here people can drive out on a day trip and go to three wineries and taste mm -hmm. and have a meal and go to a pickup party so there's a more informed consumer maybe there's a little bit more of a passionate consumer in a general sense and I, I that was a really big difference for me when people would name check you and 
they would know their stuff and say, I didn't like these two vintages of this producer, but I liked this one. And they could talk about it versus the just general excitement in California. And we'll stick to talking about Oregon wines. Wow, a new release is here. Cool. I don't care. I just want to get it because I love Oregon wine. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that was neat to see, though. I really enjoyed the passion and how excited people would get for their local wines. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. So what happens next? So that was, I guess, going through the into the the fall of 2012 i had uh, i think i think it was trudy trudy kramer had had suggested like why don't you buy some grapes just a small bit right like a ton or two and just just see what's gonna happen um you're obviously interested in this you love doing this and and i thought wow that's that's actually pretty cool and so trudy hooked me up with someone she had bought grapes from i believe out in washington and i had emailed this guy that owned a vineyard out there about what he had available and he had Tempranillo and Petit Verdot for sure. I really wanted Grenache. Still never made a Grenache. <laughs> kind of sucks because I like Grenache. But he had some fruit available. And as, you know, as, as things progressed uh, through the growing season, he was more sure of what he had. And I, I told him I needed you know, maybe a ton of one and a ton of the other. And so that became... I'm buying grapes. Okay, so what next? And and at this stage, the Kramers were definitely holding my hand through every step because I didn't realize how to do the calculations, for example, to anticipate tonnage and press volumes. And I, you know, I hadn't learned as much of that as I think I probably needed to looking back. So having Trudy and Kim and the, and Keith Kramer there and helping me through this process of like, well, you got to know this and, you know, you have to pay for the grapes at this point and all of that was was more the finer grained intricacies of winemaking and it isn't just romantic stuff out there and i knew the you know i knew the cleaning and hygiene protocols and i knew the importance of paying attention to what's going on but all that business side despite having a business degree i wasn't real sure about how it all worked the little mechanisms and so that was that was a eye opening experience but then that was the start of random wine company and that was i think i didn't know what to call it at the time, I think I had some stupid thing like Domaine du Carriefel or Chateau Carriefel, and then I realized I own no land. I do not own a house that has land on it, so I can't be a domain or a chateau. Um, I can't name it after my dog. I didn't have a dog. Um, and so I, I didn't really know what to do, but I had grapes coming. And I think it was Trudy that made the comment. She said, you know, Bo everything you buy just seems like at random. And this is from a family that has made historically Pinot Noir, Riesling, Mueller Turgau, Pinot Gris Chardonnay, a few different things, you know, like something cool and unique like Carmine or like bought maybe some Barbera or Merlot from Washington. And she she made a comment, something about random, and it just stuck, random wine. She's like, you're a random wine company or something <laughs> like that. And at that point, I threw up my hands. I, was like, I don't know what better name to pick than random wine company. And... So that was, I think, I think the grapes were on the crush pad at this point. So talk about late to the game in, in picking a name. That was, that's where it started. And it was 0.83 tons of Petit Verdot and something like 1.2 tons of Tempranillo. So very, very small amount, you know, three or four barrels total. Mm -hmm. But that was the start. That was where everything kind of began. And I had to make decisions and still pepper the Kramers with, tons of questions and how do I do this why do I do this what happens if I do this or that or that whole thing but that was where it started that yeah it was, I think it was October of 12 
Take us through, take me through that first vintage. Obviously, it's it's your first kind of maybe vintage, and I assume, yeah. I assume you paid it a lot of attention. So t tell me about that, about the, the, the decisions and the process. So it was something that going into that vintage, I knew how I wanted to make wine, or I thought I knew how I wanted to make wine. I had, I had ideas in my head which were influenced by producers in Oregon that I had become friends with and tasted with and how they made wines. And then some friends in California that how they made wines. So I knew the direction that I wanted to take. And one of the kind of uncomfortable truths was understanding that sometimes there's a divergence in the direction you want to take and what the fruit tells you. And that was, that was my introduction right there was I want to do something certain way. And then having to bone up on chemistry, which I hadn't done since freshman year of college and learning that relearning that saying, wow, this, you know, this, this, these numbers won't really make this work because it's Washington fruit. The chemistry is different than what we get here. And that was a change in my outlook on wine, but then almost overruled by the excitement of driving out to pick up grapes that were mine and seeing the bins picked there and sitting there like ready to be loaded on the trailer to be trucked back to the valley and to the winery to be processed and knowing that I was sort of the reason for those grapes being at the winery mm -hmm. was me wanting to make these wines. That was a really interesting and, and empowering moment, mm -hmm. I would say. Mm -hmm. And, and I was also extraordinarily lucky to have a support system around me with a winery, with people that cared, with people that helped and shared their knowledge so openly, which is a commentary I think on Oregon in general, the wine industry here, people are open about sharing their knowledge. And that was another difference between Oregon and California. Um, the sense of community and, and um, I've seen it said from guys like Dan Rinke and, and Dog would say it and like Barnaby at Teutonic would say, you know, rising tides lift all of us. Um, Chad Stock will say it. So those are cool guys that I look up to and have looked up to. And and seeing people like that, you know, the Kramers, Byron at Seven of Hearts, these guys would say that kind of stuff, but then they would also share their information and knowledge, um, mm -hmm. even with a guy that just moved up from California and contributed to the traffic up here. <laughs> um, that was cool. And that, that pushes you along too. Mm -hmm. In times of making terrifying decisions, you're talking thousands and thousands of dollars you're on the hook for. Mm -hmm. That pushes you along mm -hmm. of, of knowing that there are people that will help and can, you can ask them and they'll, even if they may not agree, they'll give you their opinion in a way that says, yeah, this is, I would maybe do it differently, but I get what you're saying. So mm -hmm. the, the spirit of camaraderie is, is nice and, and very powerful for those of us making wine here and who've made wine here, I think. You mentioned um, kind of having an idea for the style and the philosophy and, and, and then having to kind of adjust it. What, what was your initial goal? What kind of wines did you want to make? I wanted to make wines that were, I think, and I think any winemaker would say, or most winemakers say, you want to make a wine that reflects the terroir, but also I had, I had my idea, and it's not particularly original, was to make a wine that was just the lens to see the vineyard and that vintage, a window or a kind of a, I always envisioned in my head kind of a looking glass through that glass of wine and see what the vintage said. And that's, that's what I wanted to do. So as a result, I believed and still think that the lower the amount of inputs you have to do, the, perhaps the more clear that looking glass will be. And so I had this view of trying to do that. Very low intervention. You know, I didn't want to adorn the wine with oak. I didn't want to have all kinds of additives to it. And that was the goal. That was, and that informed me throughout 
my time as you know making wine for random wine company is, is always trying to pull back as where possible on the interventions so that but that was definitely going into it these rose colored glasses of of wow i can do this and and i want to do this and only this mm-hmm. and the inflexibility idea was kind of shattered when you start seeing great panels and understanding ph's and how they relate to microbial stability in wine and so it was it was a bit shocking but I was lucky to be walked through it by the Kramers, especially, who were there on, on site. And like, this is, we get what you're trying to do and we get why you're trying to do it, but you have to take into consideration that this wine has to be good. And it is something that we talked about. We had a conversation up at the winery, and this has stayed with me forever, is that people choose to give you their money for your wine. And you need to be honored by that. They worked at their jobs to earn money and instead of doing something else, they're giving it to you for wine. And, and to me, that meant it was my responsibility. Even if I had a philosophy of low intervention, it was still my responsibility to, to give them the best wine I could give them. And if that meant maybe having to add a yeast at some point to prevent it from turning to vinegar, maybe that's what I had to do. Because mm-hmm. it was their money, it wasn't my money. Mm-hmm. And, and to always be honored when you made a sale. So... And I think stems directly from seeing small producers in Oregon mm-hmm. where people work hard and they go out and they spend their money at the local wineries mm-hmm. and the producers are, are really thrilled. They're mm-hmm. really happy to get that sale, but not just the sale. They're happy because there's that trust mm-hmm. and the relationship of, mm-hmm. I trust you to give me something good. Mm-hmm. So. so tell me about, tell me about how the first vintage turned out and about finally selling a product that was your own. That was the first vintage I thought turned out pretty well. I was, I was real happy with the petite Verdot. I just wish I'd made more of it. That's what sucked. I didn't, there wasn't enough fruit available, but I remember that I was really happy with how that wine turned out. And this was, you know, I was at this stage of my wine drinking journey of still loving champagne and, and, and Burgundy and Loire Valley and some of the Italian reds, the Northern Italy. And here I, I turned around and I made a big red out of 100% Petit Verdot. I only did 11 months in barrel, which used French oak. So I, I, stayed true to my goals in those regards you know low barrel aging neutral oak only but i was really happy with it and the tempranillo i think was that was interesting in and of itself because it was the same and different from the rioja wines that i really liked and so i was really happy with how the how it turned i just didn't make enough wine and i couldn't i didn't have the money uh, i didn't necessarily have the fruit sources available i kind of maxed out what i could get Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i was happy and that was the label design process, uh, barrel aging, when to rack, making those decisions was in a way gets you fired up about selling it too because you have this sense of, I can't wait to share this mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. everybody. But that's not still selling the wine. You still have to sell it and, and pay the bills for the next vintage. And for that vintage, <laughs> you owe people money for glass and labels. And so got it labeled and had to go out and sell it had to find people that were going to pay for it and pay a price that would replenish my bank account so I could buy more grapes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was, yeah, that was through through 2012 into 2013 was that process of going out. So I had some great people like Michael Alberti. He put, I think, my Petit Verdot in his newsletter back when he had Storyteller Wines Mm -hmm. and blasted through a ton of it to the point where I was like, please stop selling this. There is not enough left. Like, you can't sell cases of this anymore. <laughs> and so 
um, that was one of my early stories of, of happiness and getting uh, you know someone with a great reputation locally on board and tasting the wine and saying, wow, this is this is really good. I can sell this. Mm-hmm. That's also incredibly empowering. Mm-hmm. So that was that first vintage, and then it was it was gone. <laughs> you know, you had you had to change your focus, or maybe in a way bifurcate your focus to sell what you have, but then start planning for your next vintage. And again, one of those little decisions that I think is so intuitive to so many winemakers who've done it for longer than me. But for me, you know, in my late 20s, sitting there and looking, staring my second vintage in the face going, oh, okay, how am I going to do this? While still working a full-time job for a distributor, Mm -hmm. like all of those were wake-up calls. Mm -hmm. So So I'm curious, before we get to your second vintage, which I'm very curious about, I'm, I'm first curious about You've, you've sold all of this wine in your life, all these different people, all these different mm-hmm. names. Now it's finally your name or, or a random name yeah. on the label. Yeah. Uh, tell me about that process, about presenting your wine. There's no way to go into selling your own wine without a sense of enthusiasm, I believe. And especially when you're, you're proud of the product, you're happy with the product, and you're excited. And having that, there is a cachet of First Vintage. And I was really lucky to have already networked here in Oregon through my day job selling wine that I knew accounts that I could present to so the conversations I think for me were a little easier you know I made this wine I'd like to show it to you it's my own label I made it my name on the back of it would you like to taste it and it was only two wines the Tempranillo and Petit Verdot so it was it was a lot of fun to sell and there's a little bit of an increased satisfaction when you get that check after you make that delivery absolutely mm-hmm. it, it, again goes back into being honored to sell your wine to someone and honored that this store, the small business, this wasn't big grocery stores. It wasn't even like new seasons or anything. It, these were like ENR wine storyteller kind of shops mm-hmm. that would sell these wines. Mm-hmm. And so these are family local businesses and with good reputations and cool people. So there is a sense of, again, being honored by that sale. And they taste thousands of wines a year and they decided, wow, uh, I'll, you know, I'll buy a case of this and a case of this. So. It was exciting. It was thrilling in a way. It really was. And in that, it's encouraging and it motivates you. And it, it does tell you that you're on the right track, I would say. It, it pushes you to believe that. Mm-hmm. So. But the other side of that, what about people who didn't buy your wines? Was, there any, was, it, was it hard not to take it personally? It, in a way, it actually wasn't. And I don't think that that's I I don't mean that as any kind of commentary on my superior character by any means (laughs) because that's not true I think that it's more like I knew sales really well I was comfortable selling Mm -hmm. and so I knew rejection and I also tried to tell myself that even if this person wasn't interested today I could keep a conversation with them uh, to the wine merchant the wine shop I could say you know is this something you think about maybe you don't want to buy a petit verdot or a tempranillo as we go into summer but is there something you want to think about for fall Mm -hmm. and even if you hear no at least receive the no with a sense of grace and still be thankful that they took the time to talk to you and keep that relationship because who knows what you're going to make the next vintage especially if you're a random wine company (laughs) because i didn't really know at that point so what if i made something different Mm -hmm. so were you interacting with any consumers directly at this point? I did, I did. There were some tastings. So again, 20, 2013, I suppose that would have been, into 2014, there were some tastings. Um, pickup parties, uh, the Kramers were generous enough to let me pour at their tastings and sell my wines next to them. And there were, 
I would say tastings there that I would do. I would pour. Um, so um, Becky, my, we, were, we were together then. She owned a wine store in Forest Grove, the, the Urban Decanter, and she kind of revitalized that place, to be perfectly honest. And I would pour there, and, and there would be other people pouring. Vincent would come out and pour, and that was great because you got these awesome you know, shards and, and Pinot Noir bottlings that he would do, or Byron would come to pour, and all these other guys. I'm just name-dropping my friends at this point. <laughs> but these guys would come and pour these really cool wines. Ewald would come and pour there, these awesome German Rieslings. And so with them, I would ask them, where do you pour? Or like what you know? What events do you have? Where do you pour? So I would I would just pour locally. Again, I, I had a newsletter kind of going at that point as well because I'd been writing a blog. So I used the blog to lever that into. If you're interested about my wines, sign up. Mm-hmm. If you're not, no big deal. It's fine. But if you are interested, so I had a newsletter, kind of a burgeoning little like mailing list news. I would send out updates and send out offers to sell wine. I sold a fair bit through that as well, which was everybody's dream. Every winemaker's dream is direct to consumer. Let's be honest. Like you want to sell that stuff. As, as at the price that you want but mm-hmm. yeah I would say that I was I was getting some exposure mm-hmm. slowly mm-hmm. which is I think the natural progression it, it, we weren't necessarily in Oregon at the stage where things blow up real quick mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe we're at that now in 2021 or starting to see that where mm-hmm. a producer will just blow up but I don't think in 2014 we necessarily were yet mm-hmm. so so you've had your kind of whole life building up and you eat to a, to a vintage that you've now successfully pulled off and, and sold and, and now you're looking at second vintage. So tell me about that, that process. The second vintage became something of the need to expand production and the need to expand away from making just two big reds. There was uh, conversations we were having in that vintage and remember 2013 was going great it was going to be an awesome vintage and i think still a lot of people made great wines until that rain event that we had that typhoon monsoon whatever it was that sucked and that was terrible but a lot of people made the best of it and made some like i said really good great wines but the conversations i was having with the kramers because they had the space was what can i make here Uh, how much space do we have and then starting to talk you know kim kramer at that point was doing a lot of the day-to-day winemaking she was hands-on every day in the winery and so having conversations with her and and we shared a lot of the same palette we loved the wines of champagne the wines of burgundy we loved to taste different stuff but we were honing in on styles that we liked and i mean i loved organ pinot so it was pretty cool to have a mentor that made organ pinot Mm -hmm. and sparkling wine too so having conversations with her about what to make and i think feeding off each other because she knew in a good way she had a good influence and she could kind of suggest things to me like you know you, have you thought about a rosé or a white or you know have you worked with pinot noir and to that point i didn't really care to make a pinot noir i still never really thought about it because so many of my friends made such great pinot noir what, what do i have to add to that conversation not much i mean there isn't a new way to make pinot noir i don't think that unless i've been out of touch for so long I really don't think, I mean, you're still going to age it in barrels or concrete or something. You're still going to make it the same way you'd make red wine. So cool. What am I going to do differently? Nothing in my mind. So I didn't want to make Pinot Noir, but I really wanted to do something with Gamay Noir. And a lot of the cool hip wine community, which I thought I was a part of, were making Gamay. Um, uh, Division, Tom and Kate at Division had some Gamays going that were really cool. Brickhouse, I mean, I think it's probably one of my favorites in Oregon. And then you had growers like Methven were growing it down there. Mm-hmm. And so that became a focus at that point, looking into 2013. And the increased production, I really wanted to make Cabernet Franc. 
uh, again, loving the wines of the Loire was kind of a thing. And so we talked about going into it with a mindset of what to make or how to make it. Definitely looking at those. Mm-hmm. So that was what I started looking away from bigger reds, but then also Syrah. I wanted to make a Syrah. I love Syrah. It's hard to sell, as everybody knows by this point. The joke is old, but it's true. So I wanted to make a Syrah. I wanted to do like a co-ferment with Viognier in there too, a little homage to Cote Roti. And I remember many years ago, I'm trying to remember, I think it was uh, Marcus um, when he had the Matello label, mm-hmm. did that fool's journey. It was single vineyard, Willamette Valley co-fermented Syrah and Viognier. And it had a few vintages of those and was just blown away. And I thought, wow, they can do this in the Northwest. And I really wanted to make an Oregon Willamette Valley Syrah. Never got to do that, but I found a fruit source out in Washington that had some Syrah and Viognier planted, you know, planted out there, same vineyard, everything. So mm-hmm. that's that's how things were shaping up at that mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. So it really was kind of random still at yes. this point. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think no Tempranillo or Petit Verdot came back. The vineyard I bought from in 12 was sold and the new owners... I think it all went into Northwest Red Blends. Mm-hmm. It They didn't care to do business with small people that needed a ton or two. Mm-hmm. They just didn't care. They wanted to probably just drive a mechanical harvester through there and take everything and then replant Cabernet Sauvignon. I don't know. So <laughs> so it, it definitely steered me away in a new direction, in a good way. Mm-hmm. So take me through the, the growth of your business from that point. Uh, did you Did you have, at that point, were you starting to come up with, with goals for production size, for for your own space? Was any of that starting to take shape? The the production size, I thought I, I thought for a while I felt comfortable at 500 cases max because I was working a full-time distribution job and there was always a little bit of friction there um, and selling other wines too at the same time. So that felt manageable working full time and still doing 500 cases. The Kramers were awesome. They had space, they had plenty of space. Um, uh, John Jennison from Thistle was making his wines there. And so there was, there was space to make wine. And so I wasn't worried about that at that point. I'd written a business plan that said, I believe it was around 3,200 cases would get, create that financial cycle to keep things self-sustaining. And I'd written that business plan by myself. So it's probably pretty bad at that point. (laughs) a few years out of college and out of business school so I don't know how accurate it was but it was predicated on you know certain increases in sales per year and increases in product offering and and growing business getting a distributor to go out of state as well so I was pretty comfortable growing production doubling it that year I was out of Petit Verdot I think by then out of Tempranillo by then and knew that I had to make more wine than the year before Mm -hmm. And knew that if I was going to be random wine company, I needed to make something different. So that that was the the segue to 2013, and and still more of those little elements of the business side mm-hmm. falling into place. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. so at that point, um, t- tell me, take me, take us through kind of then how the business grew from 2013 on, and 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 what and and again as, as from a year to year or or overall plan, what what the ideas what were for growth. The, well, the idea was, first and foremost, to expand the product offerings. Um, make more wine, yeah, great, but also expand and keep it low production and never make more than maybe like four or five barrels per. I didn't want to make only Syrah, right, for example, or only Petit Verdot and make six barrels of that and have to sell 150 cases. That, that didn't appeal to me. So instead, I thought I'll, I'll increase by filling some product 
lines and, and make a white or something or a rosé or a white, make a lighter red, still make a more fuller bodied red. And so for me that meant, yeah, more offerings. So that should translate into more sales and it should get people to be excited, but it should also hopefully keep Random Wine Company in the conversation about wine in Oregon and keep my relevance, you know, living and working in Forest Grove, Portland, the Portland Metro, keep my name in the conversation there. I'm like, oh yeah, do you know what's what's going on? You know, what Bo's making new wines this year, right? So the growth of that was cool and great to see and cash flow wines were selling pretty well. Um, I think I got some restaurant placements that were helping too, which was really nice to see your wine on like someone's table. I was like, wow, this yeah. is this is pretty cool. And so yeah, it was that was the the growth of the business. It was very growth oriented. I was selling my own wines, still, you know, working full time for a distributor, but using trying to leverage that network mm -hmm. to sell my own wines mm -hmm. and sending out the newsletter, very active on Instagram and and uh, Facebook and Twitter and participating in the wine conversation too mm -hmm. in 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 that way to stay relevant, but also part of it was just enjoyment too. Mm -hmm. Talking about wine with people in Oregon was was fun, is fun. You mentioned the, the the Portland metro area wine scene, which of course was growing at the time. Mm -hmm. It's still growing uh, significantly. Uh, tell me about being part of that and what you were seeing in kind of your peers at the time, and, and maybe was there something you were something they were doing that you were aspiring to? I think what I was seeing at the time was a lot of growth. Um, there was a lot of fruit available, and a lot of people were were coming from similar backgrounds to me, from a retail background and or a background of something almost entirely different and starting their own labels. I think right around that time, uh, Corey from Jackalope was getting started. And, and so, you know, I think in the early 2010s, you had, you know, Helioterra, Anne was getting started after working at Apolloni for a while. And, and I, I know that Brianne was getting her label started at Day Wine. So you had these newer labels, which captured a lot of attention in a good way. And then you still had these, I say the word reliable, but it's not intended as a pejorative. It's more like you knew you were getting great wine from White Rose and, and Druin and, and Brooks and, you know, Willa Kenzie, all these, you know, the Kramers, the Campbells at Elk Cove. You knew you were getting consistently excellent wines from them. And I think as a consumer, it was probably really exciting. Mm -hmm. For me, I saw it as there's finite shelf space. So it adds a level of stress, mm -hmm. and that's partly why I never went into Pinot Noir so hard. Um, when I was working my day job and calling on grocery stores, I would look at the Pinot Noir shelves, see how many bottlings there were, and it blew me away, you know, how many. And I loved that diversity of choice, but I didn't want to be part of the buying decision for that. I wanted to be on a different shelf, or I wanted to be on a different section of the restaurant wine list. Mm -hmm. And that stayed with me through all the vintages and was kind of stayed with me from the beginning of Random Wine Company. Mm -hmm. So that was the sales, was how to differentiate yourself, making bigger reds but still making them as a young winemaker who definitely has opinionated ideas of what to make and how to make it. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, the Portland wine market feeds your ego in that way. Mm -hmm. It really does. You get some successes and it feeds your ego and you, I think, start to believe the hype, which can be good. It's a powerful motivator as well. Um, but it also, it, it taught me to, to listen to the old guard as well. And old guard is the, is an honorific that I think we should be respectful of. And they make wines differently maybe, but that doesn't mean bad. And they, they laid the groundwork mm -hmm. without them. We wouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. So that was the evolution of, I think for me kind of opening my eyes up to that. Mm -hmm. 
at that point and then you know through 2014 2015-ish so at some point I know you're going to get out of the industry here before the story ends here so tell me about the build-up to that point and then the kind of the 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 decision to leave so tell me about the sort of the rest of the growth and the decision to leave so it so to go through 13 I ended up making a, a red bland pinot and gamay I read I made a still rosé uh, of Gamay Noir. I made a sparkling Gamay Noir rosé, which I don't think anybody had made the traditional method to that point. I, I looked into it. I tried to ask, and no one really knew of one. That was for sale, I guess I should say. Maybe some home winemakers, but we hadn't, we never found if anyone ever made a, a traditional method Gamay rosé sparkling. Now there's a bunch of them out there, so woohoo. <laughs> um, but I was really proud of that wine, and I was also proud of the Cabernet Franc and the Syrah with Viognier. I was really proud of those wines. In 2013, I thought they turned out as well as anything and that increase in production was great I sold more um, and what happened though was I was still working full time as a distributor and that 2013 harvest was the actual 18 to 20 hour days and so I would work full time like I would get up in the morning work full time come home have to change go out to the winery do work come home and, you know, even though it's Gaston and Forest Grove are close and it was great to have the Kramers there and, and, and Becky and like supporting me, it was still, I remember at the end of it, I had like accounts that I saw only for my day job were like, what's wrong with you? Are you sick? And because I had bags under my eyes and I was like, I said, no, I'm just, you know, making wine and this is really hard. And that's even with people helping. And so that was an inflection point of, is this truly sustainable? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I made those wines, the 13s labeled, you know, getting them out there that stupid sparkling wine took forever. It took 20-something months to come around, but it, you know, it turned out great. It, I'm very, very proud of that wine. It was well-received. I just wish I'd made more of it, as maybe you're seeing a theme here. <laughs> and the, the tough part of that was trying to balance selling so many different things. And so going through 2014 with the 13s in bottle and selling them, uh, the rosé, you know, was selling great. The still wine was selling fine, you know, and being able to push wines out in the spring was really cool and get them out in the market. I made the Pinot Noir, Gamay Noir was was really fun. But I was, after the harvest of 13, I did really have to stop and think, what what do I want out of this? Do I really want to commit myself? And I thought I did, and I had intended to. And then in going into 2014, we had that big snowstorm. I was living out in Forest Grove, and we had like 11 inches of snow or something out there. It was crazy. But I ended up uh, falling, and I tore some ligaments in my ankle in February of 2014. And that was, you know, I couldn't work. I had a cast on my leg. I just sat at home. Um, I didn't get out there to sell because I couldn't. I was trying to do newsletters and and offers via that and and keep in touch as I could. But I, I was off work. I mean, I couldn't move. I ended up having surgery. Uh, to repair take scar tissue out of my ankle that was like packed into the ankle joint so that set me back and then going into the 14 harvest I still had the enthusiasm to make wine but I was so fatigued emotionally from that summer that everything suffered my health my relationship you know my my wanting to just sell wine to be in wine was was really hard then Mm -hmm. really tough and finally had the surgery got better 14 harvest came around um and worked through that, um, tweaked things a little bit, 
Um, did you know? Made my first white wine, a, a Grenache Blanc Marsan, which was really cool. Got that. Got the fruit for from Herb Quadi down in Southern Oregon for that. He's he's a cool dude. There's a reason so many people use his fruit, and so that was though a really big point of am I still feeling joy in this? Mm-hmm. Not passion or motivation or enthusiasm, but is there that feeling of joy? The same feeling from 2011, pushing around bins loaded with fermenting grapes on the crush pad and and crush pad beers after work, and, and I thought I felt it, and but at, uh, unfortunately my relationship was suffering too, and so that, you know, going into 15, I had these 14s in barrel. Going into 15, the relationship ended, and I needed to leave uh, Forest Grove. I I wasn't doing well there. Mental, my mental health was not doing well in Forest Grove. It wasn't what I thought it was for me. Mm-hmm. And with the relationship ending, I moved into the city of Portland um, to where I am now, uh, where we are now, I suppose. <laughs> and that was a really huge thing because it changed me from being in a winemaking family. It changed the uh, you know handshake agreement we had with the Kramers. It, it changed everything, and I had to. I still worked full time for a distributor, and that was. That was crazy because the offices, again, were in Oregon City. So I was still driving there every morning and then driving out. And so that pushed, sitting on that pendulum in the summer of 14 and the fall of 14 of what do I do, that pushed me down the the slope of, you know, I don't know if I can keep making wine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just take a year off. Well, unfortunately, a year turns into two. Um, Inventory to sell. The distributorship I was with, um, there was a huge labor dispute that was on the news about contracts and unions and stuff, and I was caught up in that. I, you know, I lost my job there, but I went to work for another great distributor, local one, um, and so I was working for Vertical at the time, but selling my own wines on the side, and there's still always that friction. There's always a little bit of friction, and so the reasons to not make wine. Uh, for a year turning to reasons to not make wine for two years and after two years you know you're sitting on inventory still in barrel or in bottle and your network has changed and you're living in a new in, in the city of Portland it, it pushes you away from, or pushed me away I don't think you know maybe not everyone hopefully but it, it pushed me away from production still you know loved to drink it and was part of you know, all my friends lived in Portland in the city area so see them go to these great restaurants I remember when Sauvage was open Jesse Skiles had that great restaurant and we loved going there, for example, and you know, having little wine dinners there when uh, when Jeff Veer was doing the wine program. There was awesome stuff there, and so you knew there was cool hot spots, and that sucked me in more than making wine. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any more of the sparkling rosé to sell, which sucked because I was so proud of that wine. That was such a great entry point for a lot of places that otherwise wouldn't talk to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, you know, I had I had other wines to sell, and it was again more crowded, more and more crowded, and. It just felt like a snowball was happening and not quite to where it took a life of its own on because I was fully aware of the need to keep selling wine, especially the wine I'd paid for. I'd paid to, you know, bottle it and and store it and, and needed to get it out the door. And so it just became almost impossible to make wine out there in Gaston. And there wasn't really a suitable space for me here that worked with my business model um, in the city. Just... Some places were available, but the pricing just didn't work. I would have had to really increase prices, which I didn't feel my brand was ready for, uh, because I'd always tried to be super sensitive to pricing, which goes way back to when we were talking about retail and and sensitive price points for consumers. And I'd always tried to be real aware of that and what people can spend realistically, not what I want them to spend. I didn't want to come onto market 
you know, with, with some super expensive wine and say, look at me. I, I wanted it to just get out there and say, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm small production, but I tried to keep these. I wasn't paying myself mm-hmm. for making these wines at all. So I'm sure my business professors would yell at me for that and say I'm an idiot, but they're probably right. I didn't take my own labor into account. So my point is just that everything tipped away from that. Mm-hmm. And the snowball of not producing wine, uh, buying grapes anymore was accelerating. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that happened and then that was that little lighting of the fuse of sort of the disillusionment with wine sales and wanting to maybe exit the industry too Mm -hmm. so that was a years-long process Mm -hmm. obviously here we are in 2021 but that started in that summer of 2014 spring of 2015 Mm -hmm. it started to kind of um, working it for a couple distributors, things didn't go the way I'd planned. Um, I worked for one, had to just got a better opportunity, and then I was working for Lemma and having a good time. But you know, it wasn't a company where I was going to grow. But then they ended up having to go out of business, which sucked because they were an institution in Portland sales. But so that was, I think, you know, you're talking 2017, 2018, and I hadn't made wine, but I was still selling wine. Super lucky to get hired by Casa Bruno. I'd known Reed and Dario Omen for a while. Um, and I'd known some of the reps there, they were all super cool. But even then, I was just finding it harder and harder to stay passionate about selling and the grind. And some people thrive on that, and I didn't think I was. Mm-hmm. Um, being a distributor, working as a sales rep in Portland can suck in terms of pay. I mean, that's an honest truth of the, of the wine industry, that people who maybe haven't been in it don't see it that way, but it can be real hard to live on the, on the salaries and, and the commissions in a lot of ways. And I decided I wanted to use my business degree for something. And so that was, you know, 2018, 19, trying to plan an exit mm-hmm. while still saying, I've got wine to sell. <laughs> so how do you balance that? And mm-hmm. that, that was the question I asked myself over the last three years, two or three years. Mm-hmm. So let's talk first about what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. What, what are you doing with your business degree? So I, <laughs> I work, uh, I'm an accountant for a big healthcare company. Uh, here, I've been there about a year and a half now. Um, so I have a finance degree, so I'm, I'm an accountant doing that. It's a very set schedule. Um, it's, it was a huge pay raise for me, which was very surprising. I didn't really think it through, but it's a great company. They treat us really well. Um, my end goal is to move over more towards strategic finance and work um, on working basically towards equity in the healthcare market and working on ways to, I guess, find money to support programs that serve underserved communities. That's kind of my end goal, and I think this company, Cambia, is a company that I can do that with, and so that's become my focus uh, now. You know, I've been there yeah, since November of 19, I think. Mm-hmm. So I end up leaving Casa Bruno, I miss them, but that was my, my kind of, the last wine job I had was, was that. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that you're still part of the wine community here? Yes and no. I love that I still do have a lot of friends that make wine, that sell wine, that I see around and talk to via Instagram or or Facebook or text and spend time with. Um, Pretty much all of my close circle of friends aren't in the wine business. The closest they get would be my friends Dan and Chaz from their, their Wine is Serious Business blog. They probably edge closest into, in terms of people I see regularly and hang out with, obviously COVID aside. But I still have a lot of friends that are reps and winemakers, and I get to follow them on Instagram and see what they're doing and drink their wines. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do feel like that, but I'm not making anything. 
I'm kind of selling stuff. I'm trying to sell through what I have, and that's become a you know a big thing of how do you move inventory when you're not as much a presence. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's a business case in and of itself to write, but that's so yes and no. I guess is my answer. It mm-hmm. sucks as an answer, but parts of it, yeah, I do feel part of the community, mm-hmm. and I can still go to wineries and talk and laugh and and the, again, the wine industry is great. People are like, how are you? How are you doing? You left the business, this and that, but. I'm not making wine. I, I would love to get my hands dirty, even just helping. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm in a job where I can do that, where I can take the time off and help if needed. So that's, yeah, there's, there's two sides of that. Mm-hmm. So, so in, our, in our work, we haven't talked to many people in your position who have, who have come and gone from the industry. So I'm, I'm curious, do you feel looking back that you made a mark on the wine scene here in, any, in a way? Maybe. I think it's weirdly too soon to tell because I didn't do anything for a long time in Oregon. I didn't establish necessarily a huge reputation as someone that made esoteric wines or different wines. I only did, I think, three, 12, 13, and 14. And then I did a, a pretty fun project with Corey from Jackalope. We did a Trousseau Rosé uh, 2017, I think that was. That was fun. But yeah, I, I would say that I think I maybe left a little mark, but I think that time will make that fade away mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so which I'm comfortable with now I could still drink wine <laughs> and I still have friends that make great wine mm-hmm. and I'm lucky to have that so you mentioned your your kind of initial impressions of Oregon wine as being from when you were in California drinking wines tell me about uh, when you got here and when you started to kind of immerse yourself into the industry what were your initial impressions of the of the people here and of the industry here and did they change have they changed since then I think, if anything, my impressions have gotten better. I think from my initial visit to Oregon, I realized the, community, the sense of community and what we talked about with you know the rising tide does lift everyone and, and what helps get Oregon wines more on the map is, is good. And we are above the 800-pound gorilla of California with millions of cases a year sold and wineries there output more than Oregon. So we've had to do something different here. And I say we, cause I was part of that for a while. And I think that we have, and thanks to, you know, the, the Lett family, the Ponzi's Edelsheim's, you know, all of them, you know, Harry and Wynn at, at, you know, doing things differently 30 years ago, the Campbell's and the Kramer's among them. Oregon set out on a, on a path that I think that people today are doing a good job of honoring, mm-hmm. you know, when, when Jason Lett was planting, and Charles Curry, when they were planting grapes up here, people were like, oh, Pinot Noir in Oregon, that's stupid. But now I think that you've got guys that are planting Cab Franc and Merlot and Syrah and, you know, Rebola de Giala in the valley. And so that that has to continue for Oregon, I think. We have to keep that spirit of making new cool stuff. You know, Andrew and Andrea Beckham mm-hmm. doing, making these gorgeous amphora and then planting... 20 different cool grapes like clone different clones of trousseau and and everything Mm -hmm. i think that's what oregon helped oregon and it's also the industry's job to keep the consumer aware of the changes that are happening and Mm -hmm. why it's exciting you can't let people get into this oregon pinot oregon pinot gris thing even though we are in it and it's fine because we make great examples of both but keep keep the small labels coming and keep the cool blends and cool reds whether it's valley or maybe the gorge even uh coming out and Mm -hmm. i think that there is support for that which is kind of 
hopefully answers part of your question is even now there's that so sense of community and support of these the smaller labels coming out with cool new projects mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. so what do you see as you look ahead for the industry what's what's it going to look like in the next decade i think Pinot's always going to be the red for oregon in in the the way of referring to oregon mm -hmm. no matter what i mean for 10 years i don't think it's going to change i don't think we're all of a sudden going to be cab or Cap Franc or Syrah. Um, I do think that climate change is going to keep pushing people to find higher elevation sites, uh, sites closer to the coast, to make Pinot the way that it was made a while ago. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we can make some of those Pinots that maybe David Lett made, that feel immortal. I think that we can do all we want with picking early and acid and, and exposure and we may be just at a different phase of wine, which why not then highlight other cool things? Um, and I keep thinking of, of what, what Chad is doing um, with his project and pushing things in a different direction, or whether it's someone like you know, Brooks with that. They make Pinot, and it's wonderful, but they've been Riesling-focused. Mm -hmm. And you know, Barnaby, and then you've got other cool guys like you know, Tyler with Monument or you know, Libertine Wines, right? These guys doing really cool stuff. Uh, Holt Sterling at Holden, like these guys, still pushing stuff out there and finding vineyards that maybe went into someone's like red blend ten years ago. But now he's like, no, I can make like Ribolla di Giallo or Dolcetto or you know Narrow Diablo, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to be not a newfound, but a refound happiness at that spirit of adventurism. And I think that's starting in the last couple of years. I think that started, and I hope it continues in Oregon. Really well put. I like that. That's, <laughs> Thanks. that's interesting. Uh, so obviously, we've, we've been asking people how, how COVID sort of changed their wine life. Uh, yours is a little bit different than most. Well, that's terrifying. <laughs> it's a Hitchcock movie right there. Exactly. Jeez. So we'll talk about how COVID affected your your life, and, and if wine's part of that, that's great. But just t tell us about the, the last year of your life. Um, working from home has been crazy. I think COVID has has impacted me because I had glass pours for my wines ready for restaurant month. Mm -hmm and that income is gone and so on the random wine company side where i'm still trying to just sell what i have that affected it hugely and excuse me uh, consumption wine consumption has dropped in terms of shipping wine i feel like across the country and covid has made it harder to get out for those in-person visits in addition to having kind of a now a stable day job that's made it harder to get out there and sell wine so my personally I just I cook a lot more which is great because I've loved cooking I think I got that from my mom and I love wine so I still drink a lot of wine that's great um, so no complaints there I suppose but COVID has just changed how we drink wine to I do this virtual happy hour with my friends on like Friday nights and it's great because we all drink together but we're all on a screen and it still is missing something it's affected the wine world I mean wine's a social beverage it should be and I still want to look at someone in the flesh when I'm drinking with them and you know whether we're arguing about the wine or singing its praises it's harder to do in a screen or it's even harder to do socially distanced with the ever-present fear of, of this this virus there and I think working in healthcare has maybe I, I probably get a little more granular data have access to it than a lot of people and seeing some of the things that terrify me and terrify like our chief medical officer mm -hmm. has 
made me wonder about COVID's impact going forward and is it fundamentally changing it or are we going to get a handle on this, bounce back Mm -hmm. and then go to restaurants again and drink wine and on the practical side for random wine company, will I be able to sell what I have left or am I going to have to find different avenues, Mm -hmm. you know, push bigger discounts through a newsletter or try to clear it somehow? What what decisions are there to make? And I've got other I know other people that have sitting on a couple vintages too. And who are maybe not panicking but stressed. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. it's tough. Especially for small producers who can't leverage big distribution networks and nationwide, like the small producers. So you talked a little bit about what well, kind of your future plans with with your new day job and you also mentioned the the kind of urge to get your hands dirty again. So tell me about as you look ahead, what is your wine future? I certainly would love to make wine again. Going back to that smaller scale in 2012, uh, finding a space that worked out cost-wise, um, and you know, buying a couple of tons of grapes and some barrels and just making wine. I, I would love to do that again, and, and probably use the Random Wine Company label again. Um, I think it's doable. Obviously, not right now. It's, I think there's too many things going on in the world. And I'm still so new at this position and, and all of that, but I'd love to do that. That's a goal is to do it. And, and in the meantime, help out maybe just punching down. Mm-hmm. And I've helped out at bottling some, with some friends before and it's always fun. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it reminds me of the parts that I do love, but I don't have to go around and sell those wines. You know, I don't have to spend all day in the car and I have to balance anything I do or think to do in the future with the effect on my mental health and financial health and is it something I can do Mm -hmm. so maybe being more realistic Mm -hmm. about my own limitations just as we all have Mm -hmm. is something that any future decision will have to be predicated on maybe your when you come back your brand can be called realistic wine company (laughs) exactly pragmatic wines (laughs) wines that taste good you should like them something like that please don't anybody else use that yet just give me a chance exactly Rush, got to rush down to the copyright office. Yeah, right. um, so you talked a little bit just a second ago, and I'm going to have one more question for you here. You mentioned the wine, wine being a social beverage. I'm curious, you've seen wine from every angle, basically, at this point. What, what role does wine play in a society? I think that that's a question, because wine can play so many roles in a society, that's a question that the society almost defines itself. And if we look to... European society, wine has been an integral part of that society going back thousands and thousands of years. But if we look to cultures in Southeast Asia, um, wine isn't really a part until the colonial forces were there. So wine was imposed on those cultures, whereas wine has always been a part of Italian, French, you know, all of that mm-hmm. old world. So I think that it's incumbent on us in the wine business to be aware of that and to you know, I like I really like the phrase decolonize wine. And so that means making it more accessible by understanding that things like vocabulary are different for different people and different cultures. And so for wine, wine can help with that, but only if we make it help with that. Wine isn't a person. Wine is a beverage that we have that brings us together. But if you sit there and impose your will on the wine and the conversation and how it's sold and marketed, you're doing everybody a disservice. Mm-hmm. But if you're open-minded and use wine as a lever to open a door to conversations maybe that's what wine does for a society but it is so euro dominated i mean that's how i was raised in the wine business that's how most of my friends were 
that that that's where the work needs to be done but the potential for wine is there but I think like we talked about realism a minute ago being realistic about wine's role we are the ones that impose our will on wine mm -hmm. in that way and wine can take us on that trip and journey and we can see things through the lens of the winemaker to the vineyard and the vintage and everything but we also have to make sure everybody can and has the chance to mm -hmm. without that I mean, it still remains stuffy and kind of unimportant in the grand scheme of things mm -hmm. when there's so many other important things we have to fight for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I hope that that's where wine is going. Mm -hmm. The decolonization, the opening it up to more people and creating the equity. I hope that's happening around the world. I know it's happening in Oregon, but we still have more work to do and we will do it though. I don't think that we're not going to, but we have to fight for it. Mm -hmm. You can't get complacent in 2021 about this anymore so absolutely absolutely uh all the questions that i have for you is there anything i didn't ask that i should have asked anything we didn't cover that we should have covered no i don't think so i mean it's it's been an interesting ride i'm still deciding if it's been a good or a bad ride not bad as a complete negative but it's it's been interesting the last 17 i, was, I think i did 17 years of wine hmm. and yeah still have more to learn <laughs> absolutely which is fun so well i appreciate that i appreciate you taking the time to tell us absolutely. about it and, and meeting us here in this perfect day for a very cold interview out here <laughs> in the sunshine <laughs> thank you for your stories thanks for your time sure. and we're gonna go and let you off the hook cool thanks for having me thank you for joining us for this edition of the oregon wine history archive podcast and thank you to all the supporters partners donors and interviewees who have made our project a success be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.